As we continue today with our study of the book of 2 Samuel, today we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and with it to the story of what is really the fall of David, but not just of David. And I think that's something we need to remember as we move through this story and as we move through our own stories. This is not just the story of the fall of David, it's also the story of the fall of everyone connected to David. So it's a story of the fall of David and of his family. It's a story of the fall of David and of the whole nation of Israel. One of the realities, biblically, that we find on page after page after page in the Bible, but on the pages of our lives as well, is that when we fall, we never fall in isolation. We always fall in community, and our falls affect not just us, but all the people around us. Kind of an important story today, and kind of shocking too. And I say that because if you've been with us in this study and you, like me, have just been marveling over this guy and growing in admiration for him week by week, I mean week by week, we have been looking at the life of David and going, my goodness, look at his faith. My goodness, look at his courage. My goodness, look at his fearlessness. My goodness, look at his devotion to God. My goodness, look at his selflessness. My goodness, look at his humility. Every week I'm coming to this and going, I need to be more like David. 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 I came to this story and went, oh my goodness, who is this? And I am just like David. Now, maybe not in exactly the same way, but there was a lot more resemblance than I thought. What we see today is utterly horrifying. What we see today is absolutely wicked. What we see today, based on the narrative of his life thus far, catches us completely off guard. It is shocking. It is stunning. It is surprising on a grand scale. However, if you're familiar with the rest of the Bible, it's not surprising at all. Like, oh, really? David fell? Whoop-de-doo. I mean, really? Huh. What would be surprising is if he didn't. As you move through the Bible, hero by hero, major character by major character, one of the things you discover is that every major character in the Bible, okay, in their lives is found a pattern of tragedy. It's a very definable pattern. We'll see it. The pattern of tragedy runs through the lives of every major biblical character and hero with the exception of one, and his name is Jesus. Just like that exact same pattern of tragedy runs through my life and through your life, through the lives of everyone we know, and in fact, of every human being that has ever or will ever live with the exception of one, and his name also is Jesus. One of the inescapable realities of Scripture is that everyone falls, everyone, except for Jesus. And here's what that should do for me and for you. It should drive us to him. It should drive us to the only truly innocent one who can actually offer an innocent life in behalf of the guilty. Drive us to him for our forgiveness. It should drive us to him for healing. He alone is the great physician. Really, he alone is the great physician. He uses many means, but he's the healer to heal us from the wounds of our falls and from the wounds of the falls of others. And it should drive us to Jesus for the wisdom that we need to stop in the midst of our passions and to forsake our pride and to actually see the pattern of tragedy as the pattern of tragedy is beginning to develop in our life, knowing where it ends, and then then to rely on Jesus for the strength that we need in that matter or in that moment to rebuff our passions, to transcend them somehow. And to do away with our pride that says, you know what? You're going to be the first person in history to do this, to fall and have no consequences. And to break the pattern. Everyone falls but Jesus. 
Okay, and that should drive us to Jesus. We pick up our study today in 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. The narrator says that in the spring of the year, which he now tells us, was also the time of the year when the kings, not the commanders, not the generals, but the kings of the ancient Near Eastern nations would go out to battle. What are we now told that David did instead? David sent Joab. And this is included here at the very beginning of the story as a criticism of David, as a precursor of everything that happens after this. He's saying this happened and then the fall. And you'll see how that plays out. The narrator is coming to us and he's saying, David should have led his own troops out into battle, or at the very least, at the very least, if he was going to stay home, David should have placed himself under the same vows of holy war that he placed his armies under before he sent them off, vows that would have precluded him from enjoying certain of the comforts of his home and absolutely precluded him from enjoying the comforts of women. And by that, I mean of any woman, period. He was already precluded from the wives of other men. God had come to him already and said, David, here's the deal. Wives of other men, I'm going to put a circle around them. Thou shalt not partake. They are a forbidden fruit to you. And I want you today to think in those terms. Because those are the terms that this story is evoking. For the first time in David's life, David is neglectful of his duties before God. And the reality is, you know, you read it and you think, yeah, but is it that big of a deal? I mean, so what he didn't go out to battle? So what? I mean, is it that big of a deal? It sure doesn't seem like it, does it? But what a tremendous fall that he then has. And not just him, but everyone connected to him. And so instead of leading Israel's armies out into battle himself, we read that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. So like everyone goes, but David and they without any participation by him at all ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then we read this, and it happened. You see how they're connected? Right to the fall. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his what? From his place on the floor where he had been sleeping in solidarity with his men whom he knew were sleeping out on the ground somewhere. Off in battle? No. When David arose from his very comfortable couch, he's enjoying all of the comforts of his home and was walking on the roof of the king's house. What does that matter? I've actually stood several times where this palace was built. It was built on a, on a high hill overlooking the Kidron Valley. And so then from the vantage point of the height of the roof of his house, and no doubt it was a tall house already on a tall hill, David could look down on all of the different residences that were built on the hillside below him. And the valley is small. And so right on the other side of the valley, there's another hill and he could look down on them too. But it's significant also because the roofs of the homes of the palaces of the ancient Near Eastern kings back then were typically gardens. Lush, beautiful, carefully manicured gardens. And so here is David. He is the head, not just of his family, but of a people, of a nation, over which he is the king, if you will. And he's walking here in the late afternoon. So he's walking here in the cool of the day in the elevated, beautiful, Eden-like garden of the roof of his palace. And now what will he be tempted by? He will be tempted by a woman, will he not? 
whose great beauty will offer to him something very desirable. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his very comfortable couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now what? That in that garden, from that vantage point, and here is a word that I want you to see. It's the first of three in the pattern of tragedy. David saw. Begins with your eyes. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman, and here's word number two, it's translated, was very beautiful. You're like, Tom, that's three words. It's actually one in the original language, and the word is tov. It's a significant word. It means good, and good in such a way as to be desirable. So he saw her, and she was tov. She was very beautiful. And David said, oh, dear God, I know these stories of the Bible so much better than Tom Hendricks. (laughs) So much better than everyone else here. So much better than pretty much anyone. I mean, if you are looking for a guy with a poetic imagination, Lord, you have given it to me, David. And so I'm sensing the beginning of this pattern that I see again and again and again and again and again in the characters of the Bible leading up until me, and, and not just in the characters of the Bible, but in all the people around me. I'm incredibly spiritually attuned. And so, Lord, I see this happening. Oh, Lord, I'm covering my eyes. I'm running the opposite way. Stop this pattern from happening in my life because I know what comes next. And then after that, it's a fall. And not just for me, because I will not fall in isolation. I'm going to fall in community, and it will affect many. All right, it's not what he does. But his story is redeemed if that's what we learn from it. If we learn this pattern, if we become sensitive to it, if we can begin to see it in our own lives and do that instead of what he does, what he does here is what all of us in our passions are driven to do and all of us in our pride are enabled to do. Surely you'll get away with it. It says, and David inquired about the woman. He sent and inquired about the woman. So he called some of his servants together and said, okay, who's that? Who's that? And now listen to what his servant says. His servant gets what's going on. And he's a servant indeed, like he's subtle but he's not unclear. And he's trying to take a bucket of cold water and throw it on David's passions and wake the king up and prevent him from falling. He is a good friend to the king in this instance. One of the servants said to David, hey, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who, by the way, was one of David's 37 greatest warriors and was himself the son of Ahithophel, David's chief advisor. This is a connected girl. And this is a married girl. This is a girl that God has drawn a circle around and said, Thou shalt not taste of this forbidden fruit. Do not take her. For he goes on and he says, The wife of Uriah the Hittite, who incidentally also happened to be one of David's 37 most mighty men, O king, I know what you're doing here. I can see the wheels turning like the the fire of your passion, all right? I mean, it's, it's palpable. Don't do this. Not only is this politically inexpedient, this is going to offend all of the wrong people. But she is forbidden to you. And yet we read, so David sent messengers and did what? It's the third word. It's the final one. 
He sent messengers and took her. David saw that she was tov, she was good, and he took her. And he is the king, guys. And she came to him, and he lay with her, and then we're told now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And the point of that little parenthetical is just to say that, look, she's going to be pregnant here in a second, and there is absolutely no question who the father is. It's David. That's the point of that. And then it says that she returned to her house, and I'm sorry to say that having gotten what he wanted, it certainly seems at least from a natural reading of the story that David's done with her. Hey, David, do you want me to leave you my phone number? No. How about my email? I don't think so. Well, I mean, you know, should we arrange another liaison? I mean, what do you want to... Because I feel like... No, I think we're good. I'm going to have my servants take you home now. That should make you weep. That is thoroughly awful. That is horrific. It is stunning unless you look at the stories of the Bible or unless you look at the stories of your own life. And it's not so surprising. This pattern is all over the place. It's everywhere to be found, and it's everywhere to be found in the Bible. The first place we find it is in the first few pages. It's actually in the Garden of Eden, and it's very clear to me, at least, that as the writer of 2 Samuel here is writing this story, he is self-consciously patterning it after the story of the fall of man. He is condemning David through this pattern. Oh, you want to know how great a fall this is? Oh, yeah, well, let's go to the great fall at the beginning of the Bible. And where did it happen? In a garden. And in an elevated garden, you're like, how do you know that? Because the rivers, were told, flowed down out of it. And who is Adam who was in the garden? Adam was not just the head of a nation and the head of a family. He was the head of all of humanity. He's the one from all the kings. They all descend from him. And what is he tempted by in that elevated garden? He is tempted by a woman who comes to him with something forbidden. But that is Tov. It's desirable. You know the story. She is deceived by the serpent. And then what do we read? Genesis 3, verse 6. And so it says, so when the woman, what? Saw, there's word number one, that the fruit of the forbidden tree was what? Tov, it's translated here, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. What did she then do? She took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the result of this was tragic, and not just for Adam, but for the entire human race. For us as well, because we don't fall in isolation, we fall in community. So she saw it was good, and she took. Took is a forcible term, is it not? I mean, if you grab a piece of fruit off a tree, you got to kind of twist and yank it. That's the same word used of Bathsheba. Don't be too quick to judge her. This is the king, and he took her. That's the point. We see this pattern again in the generation of Noah, Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, what? Saw that the daughters of man were what? Tov, they were attractive. And then what? They then took, they took them as their wives. And in the next chapter, God wipes out the whole planet with a flood. Pretty pervasive effect. Abram and Sarai, who were later renamed Abraham and Sarah, I want you to think of how titanic those two people are. 
when it comes to our faith. He is the father of the faithful. All right, well, they're living in the land of Canaan, but then a famine comes to the land of Canaan, and they're trying to eke out an existence, and they're thinking that's not going to happen. And instead of staying put, which is what they should have done, and just relying on God to somehow provide for them, even in the scarce times of life, they pack everything and everyone up, and they head down to Egypt because Egypt has the Nile River, and it didn't forks out into the delta, and it's fertile even in a famine. So they're thinking, okay, best place to get food there. And it says then in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 11, when Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman who is tov. You are beautiful in appearance. The word is tov. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife, and then they will kill me. But they will take you is the idea, see, and then they will let you live. And so, honey, I've been thinking this through and I have a plan. And here's the plan. When we get there, I want you to tell them that you're my sister so that they don't have to kill me to take you. We'll just hand you over. It's true. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? He says, please say to them that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, so that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was Tov. She was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh, telling him, you know, hey, she's, she's very Tov. She's good. And the woman was then what? Taken. It completes the pattern. There it is, into Pharaoh's house. And if you don't know the story, just so that you don't freak out, God delivers her. So relax. It's okay. But it was great wickedness. And it was a great wickedness that Abram did twice. Twice. And then his son did it. Because we don't sin in isolation. We fall in community. And then what do we typically do? We typically do what Adam did. We typically do what David will now try to do. We try to cover it up. You remember the story of Adam? He went off and hid in the bushes and stitched all these leaves together, you know? He's trying to hide his sin. He's trying to hide his shame. And David now tries to do exactly that same thing, which makes me wonder if that too isn't part of the pattern. But we now read in verse 5, it says, And the woman conceived as a result of her adulterous encounter with David, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And David immediately sprang into action, trying to cover it up. So David sent word to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, mind you, the battlefront is a four days walk from Jerusalem. So the messenger has to go four days to get there. And then he needs to get Uriah. And then they need to walk four days back. So at the very least, David has eight days in which to consider, or really maybe to reconsider, the great wickedness that we're about to see. Whereas his act with Bathsheba was maybe a crime of passion, what he does now to her husband is utterly and coolly premeditated. And when Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And I kind of thought that through from Uriah's perspective this week, and I thought, that's just ridiculous. It's almost suspicious, really. I mean, like, okay, I'm Uriah, so like I'm one of David's 37 most mighty men. I know that takes imagination, but just go with me on this for a second, okay? So I'm called back from the battlefront, and I'm thinking, 
you know, you would think that the king would want to most strategically deploy me, and I don't know that messenger boy would be the best deployment. Do you? I mean, it's clear that he's sending messengers back and forth from the battlefront. We'll see that. We've seen it already. Why can't Joab just send him a written report? Why can't the messenger just go gather up whatever information he needs to do, do his investigation, write a report, and bring it back? Why do you have to call me, one of your 37 most mighty men, out of the heat of the battle where I'm most effective for you and for God and for the nation, and you're going to bring me here, and this is it? All right. But it's fishy. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, and I'm just going to add a little bit, hey, bud, this is why I really brought you here. Here's what I want you to do, even though it will cause you to violate the vow you took before the Lord. It's getting weird with David, isn't it? He says, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, that's a euphemism. What he's saying is, and Uriah will spell it out, he won't speak euphemistically. He'll speak directly in a few minutes. What David is saying is, go down to your house and sleep with your wife. And here's why. So that you will think the child she's pregnant with is actually yours, and everyone else will think the child she's pregnant with is actually yours. I mean, except for the servants that I sent to go fetch her. I mean, really, we'll take her, twist her from the tree and bring her. and the messengers who are watching all this unplay in his home. It's like a a ball of yarn. It's just starting to come unraveled here. David's judgment is, is really marred by his wickedness. David says to Uriah, go down to your house and sleep with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And then this is funny. It says, and there followed him a present from the king. So I guess that David sent like a bottle of wine and a Barry White album over to the house. You know, here's some oysters. I... But now your Bathsheba, you've been used. And you know it, you've been taken by the king. Well, how, how do you say no to that? I mean, under the law, I guess you're required to cry out And to whom exactly? It's the king. You've been sent back to the place that, you know, you came from. He has no further use of you. And now, ding dong, the doorbell rings and you open the door and, hey, it's a bottle of wine and a Barry White album from David. Where's your husband? What do you mean, where's my husband? Well, isn't he home? I thought he was at the battlefront. Oh, well, David called him home. He was just in the palace. He sent him home to sleep with you. Here's the wine and the album and the... Does she not know what's going on here? She knows what's going on. So how do you think she's feeling? Valued or devalued? I don't know. It's kind of close one, isn't it? And Uriah went out from the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down into his house. And the next day when they told David, so they were watching Uriah, you see, there are people in on the deal at this point. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David, in clear frustration, brings Uriah in, and then he says to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? I sent a bottle of wine and the Barry White album. 
And Uriah said to David, now listen to this sermon. This should have pierced his heart. It's the second sermon he gets to hear. The first one was his servant going, no, don't do it. And now this. Uriah says, the ark of Israel, the ark of God and all of Israel and all of Judah dwell in booths. They're living in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then, as a part of that army and under the same vow as them, go down to my house to eat and to drink? And let's just dispense with the euphemism here for a second, David, and to lie with my wife. It's everything that David has done, isn't it? And then some. He didn't just lie with his own wives. He was lying with this guy's wife. As you live, he says, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. There's a higher law even than you and than yours. And so then David said to Uriah, well, I guess we'll have to go to plan B. So... I anticipated this. I, I've got some things in mind. Remain here today also, and, and tomorrow I'll send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David made Uriah drunk, hoping that he would then go home and sleep with his wife. Because she's tove. So that's plan B. But that doesn't work either, for we then read, and in the evening... He went out, Uriah went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house, thus proving that he was more virtuous drunk than David was sober. So then here's plan C. It's the nuclear option. In the morning, David, who we have been marveling over for months, wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He sends Uriah with his own death sentence, and I want you to judge the clarity of this letter. Like when I get to the end of it, ask yourself, do I understand what he wants me to do here or not? I mean, if I'm Joab. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him in battle that he may be struck down and die, period. That's it. You got it? Anybody confused? I'm confused, but not about the command. And so as Joab, who clearly received the message, was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men fighting from that city. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And now notice this. No one withdraws from Uriah, but instead... Some of the servants of David among the people fell. A whole group died, and Uriah the Hittite also died as a part of that group. What did Joab do? He came up with a better plan. He realized that if he did David's plan, there'd be witnesses. And he doesn't want witnesses. He doesn't want witnesses amongst his own army as to what he's going to do with one of his most mighty men, one of the 37 most mighty men of David. We're going to sell him out. We're going to kill him, guys. So here's the deal. We're going to put all of you guys into the fiercest battle, and then you guys are going to withdraw, and then we're going to let him die in front of all of you. And No, 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 that's bad for morale. That's not going to go well for Joab, and it's not going to go well for the king. Joab thinks far more viciously and far more clearly even than David. 
He says, here's the way to do this and leave no witnesses. You just send a whole group with Uriah in the middle to their death. Everybody dies, including him. It's clean. And so then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And notice how he instructed the messenger. And ask yourself, if you were the messenger, could I figure out what the real message is? He says, he says this, Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he said, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the walls? Come on, man. I mean, after all, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? He says to the messenger, look, if the king asks that question, okay, here's what I want you to say. All you have to say is your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So now you're the messenger. You've got four days to think about it, by the way, because it's a long walk. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, so Joab knows the lessons of history. He's a brilliant military strategist. He knew not to send those guys to the wall. He quoted from history and explained why he shouldn't do it. And the rebuttal to the king's anger, if the king says, well, you know, what were you thinking, is Uriah the Hittite is dead. I think that what happened here then is that all of these guys were sent to their death so that Uriah could die. It's not a difficult equation. And it seems to me that the messenger figured it out because he doesn't reserve that bit of information. He doesn't, like, let the king get all angry and then assuage his anger with that little bit of information. He leads with it. He, he puts it in his initial statement. It says the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, he said, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of your servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And listen to David's response. He says, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Stuff happens. It's war. No big deal. We're good. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And then we read that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, well, she undoubtedly knew why, don't you think? And she lamented over her husband. And I, for one, think that was very sincere. She is a very sympathetic character. And when the morning, meaning the period of mourning, the designated time of mourning, not when her actual mourning, is my guess, was over, so after about a week, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son, knowing that marrying her, in fact, carrying on a conversation with her beyond the first encounter, was never in the plan. Knowing that David had brought her husband back, 
and tried to pawn this child that was his own child with her off on him. Knowing that when that didn't work, he tried to get him drunk to do it. And knowing that when that didn't work, he murdered him. And knowing that her husband, who now is dead, at least in this story, was was really the truly virtuous one. He was the good man, the one to have. And then the story ends with this rather ominous statement. It just simply says, and this is where we'll pick it up next week, but the thing that David done displeased the Lord. You can't hide anything from him. He's the all-seeing one. So what do you do with this story then, you know? I mean, it's just depressing, isn't it? Some of you are Googling Barry White. Who is that? Like, if you're under like 45, you're going, hey. Downloading the albums, you know, the best of Barry White. Try this out this afternoon. Aside from that, what do you do with it? I think you ask yourself some sobering questions like, where have you grown neglectful in your duties before the Lord? And even things that you're just passing off as little stuff. Ah, it's just a little thing. Didi texted me this quote from Matthew Henry this week, and I think it's great. He says, when we are out of the way of our duty, we are in the way of temptation. Where have you grown neglectful in your duties before the Lord? It makes you vulnerable, you see? It leads to tragedy. Secondly, where do you see the biblical pattern of tragedy in your life right now? Like, just set your passion aside for a second. Put your pride away for a minute. Where is it? Is it there? You know the pattern. There is a seeing, and it's of something that's good. It's desirable, but it's forbidden, isn't it? And oh, in your passion... You just don't even care about the circumstances, about what might happen. And in your pride, you're thinking, you know what? I can fix it. I can buy my way out of this. I can maneuver my way out of this. I can get my way out of this. And maybe you're right, but isn't there an unseeing one who always sees? Can you really escape? There is a seeing of something good that is forbidden, a sinful desiring of it. And in a passion, there is a taking. There is a taking and then there is a fall and not just for me, and not just for you. We don't fall in isolation. We fall in community, and incidentally, we're redeemed in community too. That's a very beautiful thought. That's a helpful thing to remember. Okay, lastly, what are you doing with your sin? Are you stitching fig leaves together, you know? You calling Uriah back from the battlefront? You trying to hide it? Or are you taking it to Jesus? Because everyone falls except Jesus, and the reality of that should drive us to him for the forgiveness that we need, and it should drive us to him for the healing that we need, and it should drive us to him for the wisdom that we need to start seeing these patterns as they begin to show up in our lives. And they do for everyone, for all of us, and the strength that we need to break the cycle to stop the fall.
So I think it's fortuitous that we come to his table today. Now, the table of the Lord, the gospel of the Lord is a wonderful thing. He preaches it to us in word. He reveals it to us in song. We encounter it in prayer. And at this table, even physically, he's gathering up our senses. We touch it with our fingers. It's tactile. We taste it with our mouths. It's, it, you can taste it. We smell it with our noses, you see. It's like he's coming to us in every possible way. And he's saying, listen, I know you need this. And I'm going to come to you every possible way that I can to get it through to your heart. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll come to his table. Father, we do thank you for our Savior, the unfallen one. Lord, the only holy one, the only righteous one, the only hero, the only hero, the only one who in his heroics and in his love took all of our fallenness upon himself and washed it away with his blood on the cross. That is a marvelous and a wondrous and a mystifying and an amazing thought. Lord, how great your love for fallen people. Lord, how great your healing of all of our sin, of all of our hurts, and of all of our foolishness. God, we, I pray that as we come to this table, we will bring our fallenness to you. And we will then go back to our seats with the emblems of our forgiveness, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, who alone makes us whole and makes us clean. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.